Well, good morning. Good morning. So glad y'all were able to come out on this uh, Saturday morning. This is the, the first of the uh, uh, state discussions, keynotes, here at the Texas Tribune Festival. On behalf of the Texas Tribune, I'm very happy to welcome you to what is the fifth uh, Texas Tribune Festival. It's, uh, this particular discussion is on big cities and big challenges. My name is David Brown, and I'm the host of a program on public radio, which you may or may not have heard. It's called the Texas Standard. And we are now on about uh, 20 some odd stations across the state. Uh, if there is a representative from El Paso here, we are not on in El Paso yet. Uh, we would love to get on. I'm told that this is a technical issue, though. So, so that's, uh, that's going to be coming soon. Um, I should mention that this is a 60-minute event. And we will be having questions and answers at the end. Um, and of course, you can see the microphones there. But as such, it'd be terrific if you could silence your telephones uh, right now if, if you have not already done so. And of course, if you want to tweet, you can, if, has Evan already said the business about the, the Twitter? You can use hashtag TTF. That's how everyone's finding out about uh, what's going on uh, here. Now, I mentioned that this is, the, uh, this is the state keynote. This is just the first. There's some, have you seen that? There's some terrific, terrific events that are going on today. And um, there's gonna be a one-on-one -on -one with Joe Strauss here in this room at 11.10. And at three o'clock, you're welcome, America, Texas in 2015. Uh, 2050, I should say, not 2015. And uh, there's just some terrific events and you really should check this out if you haven't already. Um, one other thing that I wanna mention before we get started. Um, as part of the Texas Standard, we actually have uh, a suite set up downstairs in a studio. So we would love to get a chance to say hello to you. And if you'll go down to floor M1 and just go to room uh, 104, uh, you can meet some of our producers. And um, who knows, maybe we'll uh, be doing some interviews down there. Thanks again for attending. And let's get started with our panel. Um, I'm wondering which, where we should go, if we should begin down at the end. I'll tell you what, let's try this. Let's begin with um, a woman who was born in Brooklyn <laughs> to parents who never went to college, grew up in Queens, studied at Yale and at UNC Chapel Hill, and ultimately found a home in San Antonio. And that was where Ivy Taylor became the city's first African-American mayor. Her first elected post, however, was to a spot on city council. And when President Obama tapped Julian Castro to serve as housing secretary, uh, Mayor Taylor was selected by council to serve as mayor. Her opposition to a non-discrimination ordinance drew heat from some of those on the left, but as she famously told critics, and this is a quote, I will not sacrifice my core values and beliefs for political gain. And if that was the expectation for me as a black woman, you've got the wrong sister in this seat. <laughs> in a tough race against one of the state's most prominent political players, Taylor was chosen by voters to continue as mayor. That's a victory that more than one pundit has described as representative of a sea change in the politics of the Alamo City. Her successful push for a new source of water for San Antonio has won her bipartisan kudos, and though she is a fan of books, she has been known to relax with InStyle magazine on occasion. <laughs> she and her husband have a 12-year-old daughter. Please welcome the mayor of San Antonio, Ivy Taylor. Thank you so much. One of the fun things downstairs when we've been in the green room, it's, uh, it's been a real delight to get to meet some of these individuals personally. And um, uh, we were talking a bit. I want, I want to get a little serious. Now, something I should point out. This is not a news conference. I mean, one of the reasons you're here is because you want to get a sense of 
what's really on these people's minds. Now, that's not to say this won't be on the public record. It is. But, <laughs> but I really don't want to sling a bunch of questions at, at our panelists. I, I will ask all the panelists to respond to this one question, though, first, as we go through the introductions. Mayor Taylor, give me the one biggest challenge you face as mayor right now. The biggest challenge that uh, I think about in relation to the future of our city is to ensure that we don't grow into two cities based on economics, haves and the have-nots. So, uh, and that's a dialogue that's happening across the nation, this idea of income inequality. But uh, my goal as mayor is to ensure that we can connect all San Antonians to the prosperity that we have in our community. I mean, we've got a thriving economy, a low unemployment rate, but many San Antonians are not reaping the benefits of that. And so trying to figure out what I can do from this position and working in collaboration with many others in the community to uh, provide folks the opportunities to connect to to those great things that are happening is, I think, a, a big challenge. Okay, put a pin in that, because we'll be revisiting that, hopefully. Steve Adler was recently elected the 52nd mayor of Austin, Texas. He is also the first mayor of Austin with a 10-1 council. What this means, for those of you who are unfamiliar with this setup, it divides Austin into 10 districts with one council member representing each district. So this is a first for Austin as well. Other firsts, he and his brother were the first in their family to graduate from college. And after finishing his undergrad work uh, at Princeton, came to Austin for law school. And, uh, and upon his arrival, literally within the first 45 minutes, went down to Barton Springs Pool and dipped his toes in and decided he had found home. As an attorney, he's frequently represented landowners facing eminent domain issues. He spent much of his early legal career representing women and minorities in employment discrimination cases. He also did time working, for, uh, working as general counsel and chief of staff for Senator Elliot Shapley. His legal know-how may be quite useful in a suit he's filed to force the public disclosure of commercial property prices. Perhaps you've read about this. Uh, he believes uh, a lot of these commercial uh, properties are un undervalued. And if he's, if he's successful with this lawsuit, it could very well rewrite the rules across the state. Steve Adler was also instrumental in laying a foundation for the Texas Tribune as a board member, way back in, I guess it was 2009 or so. And he has served many nonprofits, but my guess is that he is proudest of his three lovely daughters. Please welcome Austin Mayor Steve Adler. Thank you. So hit me, Mayor Adler, with the one, one biggest challenge you face right now. You know, a fast-growing city like Austin, we have to focus on the same uh, equity and access issues. And in Austin, uh, I think that centers right now on mobility uh, and transportation. Uh, we've never developed that infrastructure, and without that infrastructure, I think we exacerbate uh, and, and put up considerable roadblocks in, in reaching the kind of... Um, no pun intended there, I suppose. Right, yeah. the, uh, that we would want to see uh, in the city, for the quality of life we would want to see. Only two women have held office as Houston's mayor. Only one person in history has served as council member, controller, and mayor. And I don't believe any other Houston mayor has been named one of the 100 most influential people in the world by Time Magazine. We're talking about Anise Parker, of course. She is the 61st mayor of Houston, elected three times, and is nationally famous for, among other things, pushing one of the most comprehensive non-discrimination orders in the nation. 
with the U.S. Conference of Mayors. She chairs the Criminal and Social Justice Committee, serves on President Obama's Climate Change Task Force, and I have it from good sources that she is a first-rate softball player. <laughs> that true? Uh, <laughs> used to be. As a second-generation Houstonian, she's been immersed in the life and culture of her city, graduating from Rice and spending 20 years in the oil and gas industry. She also ran a retail bookstore for about 10 years, and you know how bookstores can be. They sort of become community centers. Speaking of books, there's a leather-bound journal on her desk that I hear is filled with stories in her own handwriting, stories she could tell about being the first openly gay mayor of a major American city. Any publishers in the audience? <laughs> Parker and her wife have three daughters and a son. Please welcome Anise Parker. Did I get that story right about the uh, journal? Is that true? Yeah. It's, it's called, uh, Would This Have Happened to the Last Mayor? <laughs> <laughs> I like that. <laughs> you are thinking about writing a book, aren't you? Yeah, a little bit. Okay. <laughs> but, but the issue, of, uh, the number one issue. Now, there's the, the issue of which I have some control, and, and, and that's infrastructure. And I've been spent six years pumping money into the built environment of Houston, streets and drainage infrastructure, water sewer infrastructure. And then, but the, the biggest challenge we have is one that I have no control over, and that is that we have a $5 billion pension underfunding problem. Mm -hmm. And our pensions are controlled by the state of Texas, and they have failed to act through three legislative sessions. Wow. All right, we'll be revisiting some of these issues um, as we move And I'm happy forward. to name names if, if anybody <laughs> <laughs> <coughs> Lieutenant Governor. <coughs> <coughs> Nelda Martinez is not just the first Hispanic woman to be elected mayor of Corpus Christi. Back when she was running for council, she was the first woman and first Hispanic to be the highest vote getter in an at-large election, and she did it over the course of three elections. Overseeing the fifth largest port in the nation, Mayor Martinez did something many local pol uh, political leaders thought was impossible. She secured funding commitments to replace the Harbor Bridge and help secure the port's commercial future. And despite inheriting a 30-year backlog of street maintenance issues, Martinez put together a coalition of interests to pass a street user fee, despite considerable opposition. This is something of a homecoming uh, for her, as she is a graduate of UT Austin. Welcome, baby. <laughs> She's a prominent regional business person, uh, having founded four highly successful businesses at last count and she is currently uh, head of an asset management company in Corpus Christi. And I should say something. Don't call it Corpus. It's Corpus Christi. <laughs> All right? Thank you. Yes, anytime. Martinez's family has been in Texas since, well, uh, since before the founding of the Republic in 1836. So to say she has roots here is an understatement, and she has been known to call her hometown <clears throat> the most beautiful city in the Milky Way. Galaxy. <laughs> Galaxy. She's the most recent past president of the Texas Municipal League and currently the 53rd mayor of Corpus Christi. Please welcome Nelda Martinez. Thank you. <clears throat> okay, biggest challenge. Biggest uh, challenge. Biggest challenge in one word that's layered is infrastructure, a deferred maintenance. And even though we, we had four quadrants to answer that call and we've address three of those and still have the last quadrant, which of course is additionally um, controversial. And uh, so we have a lot more needs and resources. But related to infrastructure, when I talk about what's above the street and what's under the street, uh, also infrastructure related to water and that sustainability source, and we've been very forward thinking and visionary there, but we still are growing. 
frankly, we've had over 40 billion dollars worth of new capital just coming into our region. So we're dealing with that. And more importantly, we have you know the affordable housing infrastructure issue that's been a challenge in the last piece because of this new global economy that has come into our coastal bend, the human infrastructure element of workforce. And so we're trying to address all those needs regarding our um, immediate and long-term needs in infrastructure. Um, Joe Biden, who is known for um, clarity of phrase, uh, uh, once said that he spent 36 years in the Senate because he didn't want to have a real job. Um, he said, if you're a mayor, that's a real job. Mm -hmm. And I hear some of the comments that you're, that you're making right now, and I, and I think to myself, um, when do you have time, given all of the minutiae of dealing with issues such as infrastructure, to think in a sort of a bigger way about what your city's gonna look like, given that we're talking about a Texas that is going to be twice its size in terms of population in a very short period of time, by 2050 is what the demographer says. How do, you, how do you begin to think about the bigger pictures of what your city is going to look like in 10 years, in 20 years, when you're dealing with potholes? Well, we started dealing with our long-term water supply. We were actually in the World Book of Guinness. I don't know if we're still there for the longest pipeline uh, that we had, and that was when Bob Bullock, and we started to perfect our water rights. We were the last interbasin transfer in Senate Bill 1. So when you're sitting in this seat, if anyone ever tells you it's a part-time job, it is not. It is a, a full-time job with a significant amount of overtime because every time you are making a decision, especially related to sustainability issues and infrastructure, you have to make decisions always thinking 50 years down the road. Otherwise, you're doing a disservice to those who elected you. And as difficult that it is and as unpopular as some of those decisions are, if you don't make them, then you pay for them, like specifically the pension. She's inherited that. But so you really have to think long term. But that's, that's the issue. You can, you can think long term and hope you can imagine what the future is going to bring. And then you have the legislature that you have to deal with. <laughs> Did any of you see Dan Patrick's keynote last night? It was, uh, I don't know how many of you saw it. but. He's saying that one of his priorities in the next legislative session is going to be um, uh, reducing the, I believe they call it the rollback tax. Rollback tax. Right. Uh, right now it's at 8%. Mm -hmm. Now, what he pointed out was that um, if revenues currently, under current law, exceed uh, uh, an upward shift of 8%, um, under current state law, you can petition to have a, a vote on that. Um, he's now wanting to roll that back to something like 6%, I believe is what he said, uh, which would cause not just a possible petition vote, but an automatic vote on that revenue. Um, can you do it? Can you live under those terms? Uh, uh, Houston already does now. Do I think it's a good idea? No. It, it's, uh, it's horrendous in the ability to get ahead of the growth curve that we have. The legislature has tried to impose this on, on cities over the last several legislative sessions, and cities have uh, banded together to fight back. But Houston actually has a 4.5% cap and uh, is one of the fastest growing cities in the United States over the last 10 years. We're, we're constantly playing catch up. 
and instead of using the, the ad valorem taxes to pay for our massive infrastructure needs and 30 years of deferred maintenance on streets and drainage, uh, water and sewer, uh, similar to what uh, Mayor Martinez did, I went to the voters and, and we imposed a, a new fee. Uh, cities are service organizations, and you don't get elected mayor by saying, I am going to slash your taxes and your services. <laughs> and your services. You get elected mayor by saying, I'm going to do a better job with the money I have, and this is what I'm going to do. And if the legislature decides to step in and say, you know, here's a, here, I'm going to take another tact, and that is that so many of our conservative legislators believe in local control until they don't believe in local control. <laughs> We are the ones who have to live with the consequences of uh, the decisions that, that they make in terms of how much funding we have. Uh, the major cities across Texas have banded together for the last few sessions and asked for uh, dollars to go into uh, our, our roads, major highway mm -hmm, connectors. Mm -hmm. uh, Mayor Martinez has a big port. City of Houston has a huge port. The, we depend on uh, being able to put trucks on those roads and, and, and get them out of Houston. We have begged for the ability to do local options for uh, a, a BMT tax or a, a local option gasoline tax so we can put more money into highways so because the state won't do it. And the, the state says, no, we won't spend money on infrastructure, and we're not going to allow you to have more money, too. Is there any reason to think? I'm sorry, Mayor Adler, go I was going to say that, that with respect to local control, I think that, that a, a real, Austin's a real good example of why a one-size rule for all does not fit. Uh, Austin came close to the 8% this year. Mm -hmm. uh, had we not done that, we would not have been able to give the across-the-board uh, homestead exemption that we gave in our city. We ended up going close to 8%, but we lowered not only the tax rate in our city, but we lowered absolute taxes on the uh, median home. And we would not have been able to do any of that had we had the 8% cap this but, year. But here's the other part of that. I mean, <clears throat> we hear what you're saying there, and we also hear what Dan Patrick says about trying to reduce uh, uh, taxes for, uh, for hardworking Texans. And, and at the same time, we read in the Austin American Statesman that on average, uh, property taxes are going to be going up about $242, I believe, is, is the figure that I've read. Politically speaking, won't, doesn't that inevitably lead to a greater push for property tax reduction? Well, remember what I said. The city of Austin, which is what is subject to that cap, lowered taxes and lowered tax rates. City of Houston and lowered taxes. And we could taxes. only do that because we had the 8% limit, because it's more complicated than just saying you set a cap. That's why each, that's why that decision has to be made locally. It was that 8% cap that gave us the bandwidth to be able to give the across-the-board homestead exemption mm -hmm. we gave. Uh, so, so most of the taxes that people are paying are related to schools, not with respect to cities. Uh, the city taxes in Austin only relate to 20, 25% of the tax bill. And that's what this proposal to cap is about. Uh, and it will not deliver the, the kind of property tax relief. It would not have delivered that kind of overall property tax relief that Lieutenant Governor's talking about. And that's why I understand the purpose, I understand the goal. I just think that when you start trying to set from above mm -hmm. one size rules to fit everyone, they don't always work. But I have to put this last thing in perspective. Cities, we talk about the Texas miracle. The majority of all revenues and economic prosperity come from Texas cities. Anyone limit that? 
those decisions that are unique in every single geographic area of our huge state of Texas. And we are 49th out of 50 states. 49, there's only one other one that receives almost zero funds out of the general revenue from the state of Texas. But we want to put a cap on you and have control because we know exactly what happens and the needs for your city because we sit in your chair every single day. So the state says they want the feds to stay out of their business. Well, and how can you say out of the other side of your mouth that the state wants to get into our business? I said, keep out of our business. We know the needs in our cities, and you don't give us any general revenue out of the state funds, 49 out of 50 states. We have to be very creative of how we deal with what Mary Adler spoke to just earlier of how we deal with that. Anyone from Denton in the audience by any chance? This <laughs> issue was, uh, yes. Um, I want to I shift gears for just a moment because uh, Mayor Taylor has been grappling of late with an issue that all major cities are facing, and that's the question about what to do with uh, the disruptive technologies that are behind Uber and Lyft. Um, how did you handle this? Because th this has been, it's been tough in Houston. It's been tough in cities all across Texas, and for that matter, the nation. How did you deal with it? Yeah, we were just talking about this a little bit in the green room, and a couple of the mayors up here are still uh, dealing with this. Just this week, we announced that Uber would be returning to San Antonio, but it certainly was a long road for us to get there. We passed three ordinances related to transportation network companies, and uh, we finally were able to get to uh, somewhat of a compromise mm -hmm. that focuses on consumer choice that allows uh, them to operate. Well, actually, they had been allowed to operate before, but they chose not to. So it certainly uh, it was a, a tough issue because uh, in the, you know, on the news and in the press, they didn't really report on the real details of the negotiations back and forth. What are the things that we're actually talking about, like fingerprint background checks, the, the uh, changes in insurance industry mm -hmm. and requirements and those types of things. All people know is I want my Uber. I want to be able to use that uh, technology. So what's the solution? What, what did you decide? Is, uh, how did you get to where you wanted to be? Well, as I stated, it took us a long time to get there. At first, we passed a very uh, rigorous uh, ordinance that mirrored the requirements for our taxi industry, mm -hmm. and that was a non-starter. Um, however, in, in, in retrospect, I realized that part of that was because of how the public debate was framed early on. I mean, we had a lot of the, the um, taxi advocates that came out to all the public meetings, and, and that was the main perspective that was being shared. Uh, once that didn't work, uh, we tried again and uh, didn't get to the finish line, so we just kept pressing at it. We had to keep having conversations and letting Uber know that uh, we had priorities as a city and that it wasn't just about their business model. Mayor Adler, does Austin want Uber and Lyft? The uh, answer to that is yes. Uh, we, uh, this is Austin, Texas. Uh, we believe in disruptive technologies here. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and, and, you know, it, it's a new technology. It's providing service. It's increased safety I mean, on but, our but streets. But from the standpoint of a lot At of users, same it's time, like, well, 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 then what's the debate? We have well, it. Well, but, uh, but, but, we, but we're facing problems right <laughs> now. Well, I, 
Uh, and the fingerprinting is one of the chief issues. We had the Department of Public Safety at our city council meeting this week telling us that uh, if you really want to keep uh, passengers safe, then drivers uh, should uh, undergo a, a fingerprint background check and explain the reason why. Uh, we're going to spend the next four weeks listening to the arguments from our public, Department of Public Safety. and We're encouraging the uh, Uber representatives to, to sit down. They have come up with a different kind of background check uh, that they're using in most places around the, the, the country. I wish we had the, the clout that Houston had where we could uh, impose that. But uh, at this point, uh, uh, places where Fingerprinting is adopted. Uber has withdrawn, as they did in San Antonio when it was required. Uh, but we have those public safety issues, not only with respect to drivers, but also what happens on the street. So there are arguments on both sides. I wish, as mayors, we lived in a world that was black and white. And on some issues, I think that it, that it is. Uh, in this one, uh, we're, we're in a, uh, a gray area right now in our community trying to find uh, those, those lines. Um, our conversation now has just begun in earnest, uh, and we'll see what happens over the next four to six weeks. We've, we've, we've had Uber operating legally in Houston for a year. They, they operated for some months without a, appropriate local sanction. And we've had full fingerprint background checks. They, they threatened. We, we held firm. The, the, it is a, a disruptive technology, and it's, it is the technology of the future. And it's, it's coming. We, we might as well recognize it. The, the problem is that the, the, the leadership and management of the company is very much, they're, they're arrogant, they are, they are proponents of unfettered capitalism, and they, they, they don't bargain in good faith. Uh, when you say they don't bargain in good faith, what do you mean? For example, once we started allowing them to legally operate, and the reason that we were able to get fingerprint background checks is we compromised, and we said you can... Uh, operate with, under a provisional license for 30 days because mm -hmm. they always say, well, these are part-time drivers and they don't know if they're going to like it and why would we want the expense of the full fingerprint background check? We said, fine, let them operate for 30 days but then bring them on. And uh, we had an, a really horrific incident in Houston where uh, a rather inebriated woman was raped by an Uber driver. And uh, we looked, and they weren't in, he was not in our system at all. And uh, it turned out that uh, Uber was allowing multiple drivers to operate on their app, and they have the ability to know every driver they have. They were knowingly violating our ordinance. Uh, the Volkswagen syndrome. Uh, yes. yes. And uh, so I just told them that uh, they could. Don't let the door hit them on the way out if they didn't want to follow our rules. And as far as we can tell, with fairly aggressive enforcement, they've been complying since then. But what they like to do is go into a market, sort of overwhelm the market, uh, work with millennials, do the, do the social media, overwhelm the... Uh, we actually had our servers, uh, uh, inboxes crash in the city of Houston oh, at first. Wow. Day. We were getting uh, mail from Uber supporters from across the United States. Uh, like, let them come, let them come. Well, let us work through the ordinance, and we will let them come. But uh, if, if you shake hands with them, count your fingers. I, I by the way, <laughs> that's a good line. That's a good line. By the way, I, 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 I was eavesdropping on a conversation here, and I heard a, a new term, being de Blasioed. 
<laughs> which I gather you have you are being de Blasioed right the, uh, now. Here. The, the, the email and social media campaign has begun in Austin. Okay. Uh, I, I want to completely shift gears on something else, and this has been there's been a lot of concern about um, uh, what open carry will mean for Texas. Um, as you Another may or, gift from the legislature. As you, well, uh, it turns out that a lot of these issues really are, the, they're right there at that fulcrum between what's happening at the legislative level and what's happening actually in the cities. And this may be one of them. Uh, what, may, what many people may not completely realize is that actually, as it, as it happens, Texas is one of just a handful of states, maybe six states, that don't have, that does not currently have open carry, will not have until the start of next year. But Texas will be doing things a little bit differently as, as it is wont to do. It will uh, not allow cities to have an opt-out provision. How concerned are you about open carry in a place like Corpus Christi? Very concerned. We uh, actually, uh, I didn't support the current legislature um, that happened regarding open carry. I have strong concerns about you know, the campus. I understand the nuances. But we, a couple of years ago, frankly, uh, we're dealing, I don't know if Councilwoman Riojas, if you were with us at the time when we had a council member who wanted to, they were so concerned because there was like this school board meeting that mm -hmm. happened I think in Florida and a man came into the school board meeting and he shot, was shooting at the school board members and thank God you know, nothing happened and it was averted uh, with public safety there. And we had a council member reacted to that and said we need to allow our council members to bring in their guns to the council meeting so they can defend themselves. And I'm thinking, that's a really bad idea. <laughs> and uh, and it, our public safety is the one who has given us the best guidance on this. Because what happens is that when you have, they're trained of how to deal with someone who is actually has a weapon, firing a weapon, and they understand how to react to that. And I will tell you, council members are not trained like our public safety. If they get out their gun and they, don't, they start shooting, they don't know who's in that pathway. And so I just have very strong concerns, and I think we should uh, be allowed to opt out. Is there, is there anyone here who does not have that concern? Raise your hand. <laughs> I, I have a concealed carry permit. I'm an excellent, excellent shot and I have been known to, to, to carry my gun. But this is another, there, there are two problems with this. One is another local control issue. Uh, we have a problem uh, right now the, uh, in the Houston Zoo. Uh, the Houston Zoo has signs saying you know, no guns right. in the zoo. But the zoo is actually owned by the city of Houston and the, and the legislature has said cities that you can't prohibit guns on any public property. And uh, so now we're trying to, actually I may challenge uh, the, to the Attorney General on this. Uh, we believe that, yeah, and that, that our zoo, particularly on school day, or days when they, we have field trips and it's, there's thousands of, of kids there, mm. ought to be gun-free places. And, but we are prohibited from doing that, even on an occasional basis, and so we, we, we may end up challenging it. But the, but the bigger problem is what it says about our uh, democracy and, and public places, public meetings, that, that our society is so lawless that you are not able to be safe in America unless you are armed yourself. I find that very troubling. Sure. And when she said that I've been known for, I thought she was going to say, I've been known for shooting people. 
Except after that no, Uber thing in your finger check, I mean. You know. <laughs> well, I don't know how hopeful I am that the next legislature, you know, will see a reversal in this respect. So the onus is on us at the at the local level to try and be creative in thinking about how. Uh, we can be prepared. It's certainly a bad idea, you know, for people to more and more people be walking around with guns because uh, people seem to um, have less and less skill in communicating and resolving issues as, as has been evidenced over the years with all these road rage incidents. So I think we are going to have to uh, tackle that and figure out how we can get people to resolve their differences, uh, mediate disputes, uh, and work with our law enforcement to, to know how to handle situations where someone may pull out a gun. Well, since we're in the realm of law enforcement, I do want to be able to take some questions from the audience. Um, let me just mention a few words. Uh, Ferguson, Missouri, uh, North Charleston, South Carolina, um, woman named Sandra Bland. Things have changed in large part because of the advent of smartphones. And that has changed, fundamentally shifted the relationship between the public and um, law enforcement. Um, I'm wondering, uh, what's any of your cities adopted body cameras now for police? Yes, yes. yes. We just passed it last week. Yeah, we've been piloting it, and we should have them begin to deploy by the end of the year. We've had a small pilot, and we've just, uh, in our last budget, put a real significant investment in for expand that. And what's the situation? Same for us. We've had a pilot, and we put more money in in our last budget. We also got a federal grant um, to, to augment that. It's, uh, it's interesting how much the rhetoric, uh, you know, centering around uh, Black Lives Matter has meant to the public at large. Um, how have you addressed Black Lives Matter? Do you embrace that slogan? Well, <laughs> certainly I, I know that many folks, you know, feel, well, all lives, we all know that all lives matter. I can understand the sentiment behind the uh, slogan in, in trying to get us all to think about um, the common themes behind these incidents that keep occurring in, in different cities and thinking about how we can avoid them. We haven't had a, a huge movement in that respect in San Antonio. We do have some folks that are operating in that space. What we focused on, of course, is accountability uh, with the police through the body cams, uh, better training for the police to ensure that um, they are handling uh, incidents in the most sensitive manner possible, focusing on community policing, building relationships between uh, the police and the community. But I think we can't just focus in that law enforcement space in, on this issue, though that um, certainly is uh, important. And for many of the incidents, that has been kind of the, the common link. But some of the incidents have involved you know, vigilantes, which takes us back to the previous conversation we had about people walking around with guns. So I think part of it is, um, is us not feeling so disconnected from our fellow citizens that we make assumptions about them just based on uh, physical characteristics. But how do you repair that uh, damaged uh, connection between people, uh, the people you serve, and, and the police that serve them? How, how does a mayor, can a mayor, um, repair that 
that relationship? Well, the fact that, uh, you know, with this Black Lives Matter, we're talking about it now. It's elevating a, a conversation. And uh, as mayor, you have to make sure that you're uh, not only being engaged in the conversation, you're trying to address the concerns and put in policy, frankly, to address the, what's our very valid concerns. And of course, all lives matter. But, uh, and we deal, we talk about racial profiling, whether you like it or not, it's out there. And, um, and so we make sure that we have those necessary trainings and practices. And you know, our last uh, police chief, rest his soul, was, was tremendous, uh, very engaged in the community, African-American. We lost him to a, a tragic motorcycle accident a, a few months ago. But I will tell you, he was one of the best out there in making sure that he was listening to all walks of life in making sure not only within a certain segment of a, a race of a population that we just had equity across the board and how they had practices out in public safety. It's, um, it's policy, it's training, it's having a department that actually looks like the city that's, mm -hmm. that's policed, and it's having uh, community-oriented policing where there are avenues of communication that exist before the crisis comes. It's both those things. It's the community-oriented policing. We're real lucky, I think, in Austin in that there's, we have a police force that puts a high premium on that. Heck, if you walk in a parade in Austin, Texas, uh, with the police chief here, people want more selfies with him than any of the politicians. <laughs> I kind of like that. are walking down He's the street. He's good on Periscope, too, I think. Yeah. And it's, he is, and, and it's accountability, and it's having a, a, a public safety and law enforcement force that invites that measure of, of yeah, Should there be a rule between cities not trying to rip off each other's police? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, well, can we, all those in favor? So, but it's not just, but it's not just a, it's not just a, a law enforcement I issue either. And it's uh, it, it, I have, my wife and I have four adopted children, and our son is 39 years old, and he's African American, and uh, he went to visit my mom. My mother lives in Charleston, South Carolina. I actually graduated high school in North Charleston, mm -hmm. so I'm very familiar with with that area. He went, to, he went to visit my mom last year, and before he left, I had the conversation with him that I know you have a key to her house. When you go to her house, you go in the front door, and you stand there, and you ring the doorbell. You don't let yourself in the house. Mm. She's an elderly white woman in a southern town. And that's not going to go away until the millennials are in charge, and they have grown up in a completely different environment, a completely different experience, and they see race in a fundamentally different way. Mm -hmm. we, we really would like to give uh, folks in the audience a chance to um, ask questions, and if you want to go ahead and, and get in front of the mics now, line up in front of the mics now, that's terrific. And while you're doing that, I just want to ask one other quick question of, of our panel. Um, have another legislative session coming up, and you know, uh, Lieutenant Governor uh, Patrick has issued sort of marching orders, if you will, to members of the legislature. If you could do the same thing from your perspective <laughs> as a mayor, what would be your marching orders to the legislature, the next legislature? Stay out of our business in the city and let us do our job. <laughs> fund schools across the state of Texas. Mayor Adler? You know, I think local control more than anything else. I think it's to really take to heart that uh, 
the things that are happening at the local level are best handled locally. Yeah, mine would be the same. Let us handle our local issues and you fix education because that's the great equalizer. From the looks of it, we have a lot of people who are ready to ask questions. Uh, one, one thing we would ask is that, uh, that you refrain from making speeches and that you actually direct your questions <laughs> as questions. Thanks. Should we go here first? Hello. Is this on? Hello. Yes. Okay. My name is Laura Blackburn, and I live in Houston. And once upon a time, Mayor Parker appointed me to her water task force. And I want to tell you what she first told us. It was, think big. So that's sort of in response to, do they have time to think big? I think so. The other one is a much broader issue, and that is the issue of hurricanes. Two of you live on the coast. The other two of you are frequently impacted by hurricanes that occur on the, on the coast. Certainly San Antonio has been, and Austin as well. Uh, being from Houston, I lived through a number of hurricanes, and we become Part of my responsibility is looking at climate change. If any of you have paid any attention to uh, the Pacific Coast, you know that they have been having Category 5 hurricanes time after time after time. That's going to happen in the Atlantic one of these days. And I'd like to know what you think we should do about preparedness for hurricanes. And I'll direct it first to Mayor Parker and then to our Corpus Christi Mayor. Thank you, Ms. Blackburn. <laughs> Thank you. Why don't you give me a softball? <laughs> <laughs> Climate, climate instability is a, a fact. We don't have to argue about who caused it. It's, it climate change is happening. I, I serve on the President's Task Force on, on Climate Change and Resiliency, and I'm also on the, the International Steering Committee for the C40, which is a coalition of, of world megacities. Because our federal government and our state governments have failed to act uh, on mm -hmm. climate change, we are, as mayors across the globe, working at the subnational level to do things that uh, we believe can uh, reverse or, uh, or stop climate change. And uh, there are a lot of things we can do. At, at, for the first time in history, the majority of the world's population are in cities. And the, the decisions that cities make can have a direct impact. And so I, I'm not going to take up a whole lot of time, but the city of Houston has a whole range of initiatives that we have engaged in. We have uh, reduced our greenhouse gas emissions by more than 40% since our benchmark year of, of 2007. Uh, we think we can achieve 80% uh, reduction within the next uh, 20 years, and we're moving aggressively toward that. And if you go to the city's website, you can find a lot of information about that. That will have an impact on the strength and severity of, of hurricanes if we can uh, reduce or reverse. One other quick question. Are you in favor of the Ike Dyke? I don't have a position on the Ike Dyke versus the Centennial Gate. We need to do something. My preference is, and is what was recommended by the President's Task Force, on which I served, and that is to try to use natural barriers, restore wetlands, uh, 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 green space, before you build large man-made barriers. But I, but I have visited the, uh, the sea gates in, um, in Rotterdam and, and in other places, and I know they work. Uh, so it's going to be a matter of whether we want to spend the billions of dollars to make it happen, because we know the state's not going to help us. Uh, forgive me, because we want to get as many questions as we can. <laughs> so let's move on to this uh, side of the room, if we can, please. 
Good morning. Uh, my name is Will Mack, and I recently moved to Austin. So I'll direct my question to Mayor Adler, but any of you feel free to respond. Recently, uh, in Austin, of course, property uh, <clears throat> property values have soared, and affordable housing is hard to find. Uh, I I saw my uh, rent renewal notice. My my rent is going to increase almost 10% in one year. So beyond property tax relief, what more can the city do to encourage affordable housing and uh, make that available for more people? Affordable housing. Huge issue in Austin, Texas, uh, housing costs are going up three times faster than incomes are rising. Uh, and it's moving people out. We're losing people in communities. Uh, you know, uh, since I've come into office, we've lowered the poverty rate in the city not because we've done anything, but because low-income people are being forced to leave or exporting poverty. There are two different ways that you make housing more affordable. You have more housing that costs less, or you give people more money to spend, and we're trying to work in both of those areas. Uh, we're revamping the permitting process in our city, which is too long and costs too much, so that we can bring down that kind of housing cost so that we can increase supply. We're taking a look at density provisions that will enable housing to be uh, built and available uh, at lower costs. We're also spending a lot, a lot of time and effort on increasing job training in the city so that we, we you know, in Austin, Texas, we're, we're, we're blessed to be able to say that we create more middle-class jobs than any other city in the country, but we have a huge gap between the people who live here that are able to take those jobs and the jobs that are created. So we're bringing in people to take those jobs because we don't have the workforce here. So we're working on those areas as well. Uh, there are 40,000 Class C and D apartments in the city of Austin that are affordable, that are on transportation corridors that are going to be lost in the next 10 years to gentrification. That's a $4.5 billion issue or challenge for the city. And right now we're coming up with really creative ways to be able to preserve that housing stock. And in that element, I think we're going to be able to take big steps forward. We just had a significant bold move a couple of years ago where we uh, totally outsourced our planning department and uh, we were somewhat antiquated with our built environment and how we plan um, our built environment and so with this being done now and we're getting to a place where we're now going to uh, it's gone through planning commission it's gone through public hearing and now we're going to be voting on this new plan CC 2035 a good portion of that incorporates uh, affordable housing and uh, also strategies there and so but currently what we're doing today uh, we're also making sure that we're having one idea that we've had with some of our foreclosed properties for taxes we're having a public-private partnership that we're now going to be doing uh, we still have to vet it but we're looking at pilot projects to where we can donate the land on these uh, foreclosed properties to where they can make these more affordable uh, on the back end after they're constructed. And so we're working uh, again with the private sector there and the public being the, the land contribution. And uh, of course we're working with our uh, affordable housing partnerships, but um, it all comes down to huge volume. And so you can only have so much foreclosed property that uh, you can have these partnerships with and so we're trying to, with this plan 2035, also in the short term have plans for density and have incentives through TERS that we currently establish downtown to help with affordable housing mix in our downtown area as well. 
So to have, make sure you have that mix of socioeconomic backgrounds that are so important. We're all fast-growing cities, and we all have the same problem. Let's move to our next question. Hi, good morning. My name is Neil Falgu. I live here in Austin. Um, I'm a former member of the Houston GLBT Political Caucus and former reporter for the Corpus Christi Caller Times. So I have plenty of connections to the cities up here. Uh, my question is related to non-discrimination ordinances and is for Mayor Martinez and Mayor Parker. Uh, Mayor Martinez, of the four cities on the panel, yours is the only, I believe, that doesn't have a non-discrimination ordinance. So I'm curious about what you think is the future for that in Corpus Christi. And Mayor, Mayor Parker, given what the city of Houston is going through right now with its uh, ordinance, what advice would you offer to Mayor Martinez? Well, my IGR, Intergovernmental uh, Relations Director, Tom Tagladu, uh, I just went to his wedding last month who got married to his partner, told me we did have one already in place before the three that were so high profile. We had had ours before. So maybe we have to have a conversation about that. And, and for Houston, uh, you never want to put civil rights issues on a ballot because they lose. And uh, you know, rights, rights are not something that should be subject to a popular vote. And then the fact that uh, ours is the first thing out of the chute after the Supreme Court uh, ruled on equal marriage. Uh, a lot of uh, right-wing national groups have decided that Houston is going to be where they, where they draw the line in the sand. So, you so, don't, so timing is everything. Do I understand you to say that you believe the ordinance is, is that's going to go down? Oh, no, absolutely not. Uh, but it is an ugly, uh, difficult fight full of uh, lies and misinformation. Well, what's fascinating is it's a 36-page document, is a, my understanding, and for the most part, um, it doesn't include anything about bathrooms. But I do understand that that's kind of how the debate is being... I think people are going to show up at the polls, and they're going to they're, they're think, where's Proposition 1? I want to vote against the mayor's sexual pervert protection bill, or the mayor's bathroom bill, and they're going to look for something, and it's not there. It's a very straightforward non-discrimination ordinance that covers race, Gender, pregnancy, veteran status, and all these other things. But it, yeah, it's gotten, it's gotten, it's gotten. These incredible. are very good questions, by the way. Uh, next question. Hi, I'm Luke Metzger. I'm with Environment Texas. Two days ago, the uh, Austin City Council dramatically expanded its investment in solar power thanks to historically low prices, and thank you, Mayor Adler, for helping make that happen. I'm wondering whether we might expect uh, other exciting news on solar from the other cities, uh, given that kind of starting to be a competition, I think, between certainly between Austin and San Antonio and who's going to be the top in the state for solar. <laughs> well, well, Houston, we buy wind. So we're 40% fueled by wind today. We have a little more cloud cover than these guys. <laughs> but uh, actually, I'm going to be going to council next week with a significant investment to, to add to our portfolio of renewables by, by investing in solar. Anyone else? Let's go to the next question. Um, good morning. My name is uh, Frederick Douglas Bailey. I'm a student at uh, Houston Tillerson University, but I'm originally from Houston. And um, I have a question about, I'm always concerned about how to get more people uh, involved in like the democratic, in democratic participation. So what do you all think about uh, like local politicians, how to get people who don't have the economic leisure to participate in politics to actually participate? To frame that question, I'm only here because I'm a part of the Hatton Sumner Scholar Foundation, and that's a very generous foundation that you know allowed me to participate in politics and be here. So, how do you think you can get more people who are not economically stable to participate? 
I'm trying to figure out why when you when you say that we don't have the economic leisure to to participate in in politics. How could you not? We determine the quality of the water you drink. We determine the training of the police officers that pull you over on the side of the road. If if you're at a, a horrible accident, if you're in Houston, it's an ambulance that I direct that's going to come and and pick you up. If you have time to to watch a TV show at night. You have time to participate in, in politics and inform yourself on the, on the candidate. But why is it, though, that, that turnout is so horrible in local elections? I mean, this is something that obviously has baffled scholars for a long time. But how do you engage people in people a way that you are People who are, who are desperately unhappy or who are scared will show up. In general, the cities across the state of Texas are well run. They're efficient. They're attracting new population, and, and people are are if you lots and lots of polling in Houston, I'm assuming from the other cities as well, is that, that people generally trust local government and are happy with it and they're not worried about so it, which is frustrating because I want them to show up to vote. I was going to say, I mean, it sounds like what you're saying is the better the job you do, the worse civic participation is. Well, there, the are, there are practical things that you can do as well as far as um, ensuring that you have meetings at times where people can make them uh, trying to get out in the community more, uh, so that people can connect with you. I do things as simple as uh, meet constituents at our library branches across the city. So, I mean, you have to think of it from that perspective, but it's not just a problem with the four cities up here. I mean, it's kind of a national problem as far as people being engaged in uh, the political scene. I think personally that we need to have more emphasis on civic education, whether that be um, through our public schools or through uh, community organizations that help uh, emphasize the fact that people have an obligation and a responsibility uh, to be involved. It certainly helps when you have uh, diversity of candidates and representatives. I think it makes people maybe pay attention, people who thought before, well, that's not really for me. When they see someone from their community or someone that looks like them involved and engaged, then they may be more apt to pay attention. The, the mayors have been very generous with their time, and this is formally when we need to wrap things up. Would you would you entertain one more question? Yes, because yeah. that's my council member right there asking <laughs> the next question. So please allow him. That's the pro that's the prime reason she always gets my vote. <laughs> I'm Joe Cryer from San Antonio. When when you opened this panel, you said the hard thing for mayors is not to worry about the problems of 2015 and 2016, is to worry about the problems of 2050. And Mayor Taylor and Mayor Adler won't be surprised for me to say this and, and ask them about this. In 2050, young people will go to cities expecting to be able to get on an airplane and get out in Seattle or New York City or Chicago. They will also be expecting to get on an airplane and get out in Beijing and Moscow and New Delhi which is one of the reasons I'm grateful that these two mayors have started a conversation about whether or not we ought to seriously explore a regional airport in this area. Mayor Parker, you know that Houston's airport has connected you to the world for decades. We, we have two international Decades, airports. yes. And yeah. as, as a regular Southwest flyer, I know about the other one. So could you all say a word about your, your thoughts, and I applaud you for your early conversations about the, exploring the idea of a regional airport? Well, thank you, Councilman, for being here. And I've been excited about the opportunity to work closely with, uh, with Mayor Adler and uh, folks throughout the region. I think it's real important for us to 
think of ourselves regionally between San Antonio and Austin. And while we're both uh, continuing on the path of making investments in our respective airports, it certainly would make sense uh, for us to uh, think and talk about the possibility of working together as we've seen it work real well in some other cities. And we, we believe that we'll, we'll, we're the South Texas powerhouse here. Uh, we're growing closer to each other, and I think it makes sense for us to think about how we can share resources and, and, um, and build together. Mayor Taylor, Mayor Adler, Mayor Parker, and Mayor Martinez, thank you all very much for a very substantive conversation. Thank you. Thank you.